This message, Be the Message, is we just talked about a number of things. One is, you know, we've been just using this be it, model it, live it, say it, do it. And this week, I, um, later in the week, came to realize it's defend it. And, and it's an interesting thing. We're going to talk about defending it. And the next week will be the last in the series, and it will be know it. Important for us to know what the message is. And so what does it mean to defend it? What comes up in your mind? You might be wondering, how do you do that? And Peter makes it pretty simple. He shares in his letter, his first letter, you find it after the book of Hebrews and James, you get a little bit later in the New Testament, there's this letter called 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 18, he talks about what it means to defend it. And specifically in verse 15 of chapter 3, it's what I would call the Magna Carta. It is the primary source when you look at um, the New Testament for this field of study which has been called apologetics. And some of you, if you're new to the church or have been in the church and you go, apologetics, what is that? Apologetics is just a, a word that's used in theology that means to defend one's beliefs. And the Greek word is apologia, from which we have a derivative that you are aware of called apology. And most often when you think of apology, you think of coming to someone and saying, I'm sorry. And that's what the word has come to mean. But apologetics in the first few centuries after Jesus Christ, with the early church fathers, we talk about apology, and the word meant more a verbal defense. It was a presentation of the reasons for why you believe what you believe. And from it rose this study of theology called apologetics, where you defend the faith against objections. So if you're going to look anywhere in the New Testament where you want to have an idea of what it means to defend, be the message and defend it, this is the place to look, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you look at this, you'll see this word in 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 18. And before we do that, I'm going to read from the message In chapter 3, verses 8 through 18, I'm going to ask you to bow your head that God might just um, take these words, and they'd be more than my words, but they might be an opportunity for God to encounter you and move you one step closer to knowing and following and becoming like Jesus in your life. Let's pray. Father, we invite you to speak in this time that you would be the message to us. Open our hearts and open our eyes that we might live in a way that we live with you every single moment and day of our life. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm reading from the message, and and it begins summing up, which in the NIV says, finally. So in this says, he says, summing up, be agreeable, be sympathetic, be loving, be compassionate, be humble. That goes for all of you. No exceptions, no retaliation, no sharp-tongued sarcasm. Instead of bless. That's your job to bless. You'll be a blessing and you'll also get a blessing. So it's really important as we move to verse 15, I want you to hear the context. It's very important when we talk about that verse, which sometimes in theology and other places gets extracted and we talk about the defense of the faith, I want you to see how it's embedded. Okay? He's talking about how we live. He says now in quoting David in Psalm 34, whoever wants to embrace life and see the day fill up with good, Here's what you do. Say nothing evil or hurtful. Snub evil and cultivate good. Run after peace for all your worth. God looks on all this with approval, listening and responding well to what he's asked, but he turns his back on those who do evil things. 
If with heart and soul you're doing good, do you think you can be stopped? Even if you suffer for it, you're still better off. Don't give the opposition a second thought. Through thick and thin, keep your hearts at attention. In adoration before Christ your master. There's some of you who have memorized this. Set apart Christ in your heart as Lord. Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way you are and always with the utmost courtesy. Keep a clear conscience before God so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. They'll, they'll end up realizing that they're the ones who need a bath. It's better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to be punished for doing bad. And that's what Christ did definitively. Suffered because of other sins. The righteous one for the unrighteous ones. He went through it all, was put to death and made alive to bring us to God. So here's the roadmap. I'm going to make it pretty simple. And the first point is this. Do not fall for the world's fossa nasa to philopification. See how that rolls off here? of the message of Christ. And secondly, be, you look a little lost on that first point. Okay, I, I thought I'd keep you awake. It's the word of the day that I got from my dictionary.com, and I got it on Thursday morning. I thought I've got to add this into my message because it's the whole idea, if you don't use it, you lose it. I mean, seriously, I mean, who would not want this in vocabulary because it just kind of rolls off your tongue? It basically means the estimation of something that's valueless, but that's not the point. So anyway, here's the roadmap. And I think it's pretty simple if you look at verses 8 through 14. First, your best defense is a good offense. That's what I think he's saying. If you look at 8 through 14, he actually makes that kind of reference. He says, don't, don't even give the opposition of second thought. If with your heart and soul you're doing good, do you think you can be stopped? There's this kind of initiative that you're taking. The, the best defense is a good offense. And we're going to look at that in a moment. Second, a good offense raises great questions. That's verses 15 through 18. And then how do you respond when those, and what is the question, and what are you responding to? So let's just take a look at this. If you look at this first few verses, the first, your best defense is a good offense. You've probably heard this little saying before. And it's applied to um, the fields of, um, of endeavors like um, games or military you know, they'll often talk about if you want to really, really um, have a, a good defense, you then need to be kind of really strong on your offense. That's some people uh, will look at that. Generally, it's the idea that a strong offensive action will preoccupy the opposition and ultimately hinder its ability to mount an opposing counterattack, and it leads to a strategic advantage. So if you think of games like chess, or you think of risk, or you think of playing football or hockey or basketball, the idea is that if you keep the pressure on, you'll keep them on their heels. You'll offensively be in initiating things so much so that they don't have the ability to actually plan a counterattack. You're just keeping them on their heels. And so in a real sense, what Peter begins by saying before he talks anything about this idea of giving a reason or a defense, which is where this whole thing of apologetics come from, he's basically saying if you really want to be in the game and on the game and really doing what's well, then here's what you need to do. He says, one's ability to prevent an enemy attacks is to stand the initiative. 
And so if you go through Peter and you read through this whole letter of his, you'll see that he's saying that again and again. He's saying the way you live, this kind of life that you live, will live, be lived in such a way that it will cause others themselves to kind of fall back onto the defense. And they will, in a sense, begin to question things in their own heart and life. So in his first letter to a group of followers of, of Jesus, scattered, he says, says Peter, throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, that's all in verse 1, he encourages them to keep this good offense. And he talks about being loving and good and honorable. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Peter says, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived before you knew Jesus. As Jesus is holy, so also be holy. So pay attention to those evil desires in your heart. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 1, he writes, get, and he kind of defines what it means to be holy like Jesus. Here are some of the desires that you need to get rid of. Get rid of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Grow up and become like Jesus. And then you go on to verse 13 of chapter 2, and Peter says, in fact, when you suffer even unjustly, Here's how you stay on the initiative. You follow in the footsteps of Jesus himself who showed you how to endure unjust suffering. You see this idea? He's saying your, your, your best defensive is really good offense, is to stay on the initiative. And then in chapter 3, at one point he's talking to wives and he says, if your husbands don't believe, he says, don't nag them, but win them over through the purity and reverence of your lives. And now we get to chapter 3, verses 8 through 14. And Peter is not here recommending that you live offensively in a negative way. He's not calling us to be obnoxious and in someone's face and trying to, trying to prove to them all the time. You're trying to win an argument so you can somehow convince them. If you can convince them that somehow they'll, they'll really go, oh, yeah, Jesus is right, and yeah, I'm going to follow him because we all know that it's important. I'm not saying these intellectual things are not a good thing when it talks about apologetics and defense of our faith. What he's talking about is what is going on in the heart and the spirit of someone, and you can convince them and you can show them by argument, but you can lose the whole, the whole war, so to speak. I remember when I was in seminary, um, one of our professors, who was a really bright guy, philosophy, he was in the study of apologetics, and they said he's going to be on TV. He's going to be debating this other guy who, who himself was an atheist. And, and so he has this debate with this atheist. And it was amazing because we watched this thing. And he just nailed him. The, every argument, the guy just couldn't, the other guy just couldn't defend himself. But when you got done, you could see the whole crowd was feeling sorry for the guy who was so beat up. And he says this here in verse 8. Simply live confident that God's in control and loves you and, and let that same love control all you do and say. It's really pretty simple to live taking an initiative. It means that you live in this way where you live like Jesus and you love like Jesus. So in verse 8, he says, Finally, all of you in NIV, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may also inherit, receive a blessing. And then he goes on in verses, um, um, after that in verse Psalm 34 to kind of establish this with the Old Testament and the writings of David. And then he says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? And even if you do, 
you get to foul like Jesus. And he ends in verse 14 with this little statement from Isaiah 8, 12. Just do not fear what they fear. You don't need to be intimidated. You have a life with the God of the universe, a, a personal relationship with Jesus, who is with you every step, every moment of your life. And so by a good offense, I think Peter says, I'm just going to highlight three things that I think are really important to stay on the initiative. If you're going to think about what this looks for, like for you, where you live and where you work and with what you do. And there's three simple things. And the first thing that I want to talk about under this whole idea of, a, of having this kind of good offense, staying on the initiative, is, is this idea of doing good at all times. That's, that's what we're called to do. Do good at all times. My wife, um, every once in a while, she'll talk to me, and, and this was probably a few years ago when you, you brought it up. You, you were questioning whether you should do something, and then you said to me, you know what, if it's a good thing, why would I question it? In fact, she heard, I think, someone say, if it's good, just do it. This idea that if you're in this position where you're thinking about whether you should do something or not, there's never a question about whether you should do it if it's good. And so in that sense, when you begin to pray about it and you have opportunities, he, I think Peter is just saying, do good. Just reach out and do good. If it means sending a card to someone, don't be thinking, well, what are they going to think? You know, if it's a good thing, do it. If someone's you know, in a difficulty, in a time of difficulty, and, and God brings something to your heart, and you start wondering, well, you know, what are they, you know, just if it's good, do it. Never question when you question whether you should do something. If it's good, just do it. I, I shared a few weeks back about... One of our elders, Mark Swiatowski, who is, um, uh, he was telling about one of his buddies, one of his friends, and he had told me this last Monday night, he had come back from the funeral of this guy. And he had shared about, a little bit about that funeral, but I had shared at that time that um, this guy that um, Mark was sharing with me, this guy, John was, the chief, was his chief resident in training, and he was an MD, a PhD, very intelligent, skilled orthopedic surgeon, in fact, one of the world's experts on ultrastructure of cartilage. Thank God someone likes to do that. Anyway, he's a skeptic agnostic, Mark said, when he was in his younger years, and Mark would share with him from time to time. And as he got older, he became to be a little more reflective. And then at a certain point, he had these, these headaches that were unremitting. He went in to, the, um, to get um, the testing for it. And when he came out, he found out that he had a brain tumor, and that brain tumor finally took his life, and the funeral was just this last weekend. But one of the things that was very interesting that Mark said, he said, you know, I shared with him, and I'm sure those were seeds and were opportunities that Mark had in his life. He said, but you know what really made the difference in his life? He said a neighbor of his who didn't even know him, she actually, this widower, brought him a loaf of bread she baked. And he had never reacted, interacted with her before, and he accepted the bread, and this is what Mark said, but began to wonder what would prompt someone, a relative stranger, to do that. Now, I just thought about, can you imagine her beginning to question as she's starting, well, sure, first, should I make the bread, you know? Is he going to think I'm a little bit straight? I don't even know him. Maybe he's a guy who likes to state himself, you know, should I really enter? If it's good, just do it. Because he looks back at that, and it was that loaf of bread. As he had received that from her, then he started to ask her, and they got into conversation. Eventually, that conversation led to her to say, I can't answer all the questions, but you know what? You can go to my church and get maybe some more answers to that. There are answers to the things that you have. But it was that simple act of goodness that took the initiative that caused him to begin to start saying, why would she do that? And not only is it to to do good at all times, 
the, the other thing I would say that you get from this passage of Scripture is to trust God in everything. In every circumstance in your life. Combine your faith with the reality of God's faithfulness and his faithfulness will actually awaken faith potentially as you do that in others. Jesus looked at a distressed crowd. They were rather anxious, could be looking like at you this morning. And he said, just look at the flowers. We can look at in the spring. He goes, man, God, your father takes care of those things. And look at the birds. They seem to be so carefree. And he basically says, think. That's your God for you. Another favorite joke of Jesus was to get people thinking about sparrows. You see those little sparrows I saw them the other day flying by me, and you know what? We talk about things being a dime a dozen. Well, he says, are not two sparrows sold for about a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground unperceived by your Father in heaven. And then I think with a twinkle in his eye, he would say, think now for a second. God cares about two small sparrows. Think about that. Don't you think you're worth as much as two birds? And most of them, I think, are thinking like you might be thinking, sure, I think I'm worth a couple cents. And Jesus would just look at him and say, stop worrying. Let your life be a constant demonstration of your confidence in God. And that happens because you start to know the God And it's not just that you believe in God, but you start believing the right things about your God. And your God, when you believe those right things, is a God who has told you and revealed that he loves you deeply. And what it means then is that we are to be people that are constantly, um, as it says, transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's taking those things. And I have to share with you, God is working hard on my life in this. And I pray he works in all our hearts where he begins to start saying, you know what? You need to be guided by the truth of who I am in your life and not by the circumstances or things going on around you. And so the entire context of this passage is one where people are suffering and yet they're happy. You ever listen to people at work, how they groan and complain? Maybe you hear them at the office here at church. No, I'm just kidding. Think about it. Think about it. There's not much happiness in the world. And if you, with whatever's going on in your life or whatever's coming against you, you're the kind of person who does good things at all times and now you have this trust in the God who, does, who is able to be trusted in everything, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. You just can't hide that. And people, after a while, are going to sit back and they're going to be wondering. It may be a week, it may be a year, maybe a couple of years, but at a certain point, they're going to just go, what in the world is going on? Dallas Willard writes, and in, 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 I have to share with you one of the best books on defending the faith and sharing your faith in this sense on apologetics is a man, Dallas Willard, called The Allure of Gentleness. Uh, if you want to read and it's, it's just a great work. But anyway, he makes this statement. He says, the equivalent in our day, when Peter says, do not fear what they fear, do not be intimidated, no matter what life throws you away, no matter what's coming at you, do not be intimidated. He writes this, the equivalent in our day would be when people look at Christ followers and note their unfortunate situation, saying things like, you're dying of cancer? You've done good and people are treating you badly? You tried to help these people and they've hurt you? 
You stood up for the truth at work and didn't get your promotion, and then they'll look at you and follow it up and say, and you're still happy? And it's not just some mere sensation of pleasure. It's not just some happening and circumstance. It's because there is this pervasive, constant sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of your confidence in the goodness of God. You hear that again? It is a pervasive and constant sense of well-being that is infused with hope because of your confidence in the goodness of God. And then he says this, if you, if you trust, if you, if you do good at all times, you trust God in everything. And then he says, here's what you do in those circumstances, love your enemies. That, that to me is the biggest thing that changes the hearts and minds of people. Peter seems to indicate that this is the single most important way you can defend the message of Jesus Christ. He doesn't, isn't it interesting? He doesn't go into a whole bunch of different arguments of what you can say. He just basically says, here's something that will, this will change the people around you. This will cause people to begin to wonder in a way that no argument could. No academic, intellectual reasoning is going to make this happen. It seems to be the most effective defense of the message of Jesus is loving your enemies. Single-handedly, that has devastated more intellectual defenses against following Jesus than the most persuasive academic arguments. So Peter says in verses 15 through 18, keep a clear conscience before God so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. They'll end up realizing that they're the ones who need a bath. It's better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to be punished for doing bad. Now catch this. That's what Christ did definitively. Suffered because of other sins. The righteous one for the unrighteous ones. He went through it all went to the cross and was made alive again. And it brought you to God. That's what brings people to God. Remember, Christianity is the only religion based on love. Catch that. Christianity is the only religion based on love. The best defense is a good defense. So if you plan to offend someone at all, do it with a gracious love, intentionally and genuinely. Love those who oppose you. Take the initiative and, and greet them. Don't, don't kind of walk away from them. Love those by genuinely thinking of ways, what can I do that would be good, that would be appropriate? How can I really begin to train myself to speak well when I want to speak bad? What can I do to bless and then to really pray for that person? Peter says, be, get ready to give an account or, a, or the reason for the hope and do so gently and with, respectfully with a clean conscience. Every day we have an opportunity to reaffirm what is the most unique part of our faith. And it's, and it's what I call active love. Specifically for those who oppose you. What other religion, think about it, has John 3.16? I was um, this, about a week ago on a Saturday. They had a meet your neighbor barbecue, and it was hosted by the Northwest Islamic Community Center. And, and, and they were very gracious, and they wanted to share with us a little bit about themselves. And you could tell they were very nervous because of all that's going on, and and very defensive in some ways, kind of saying that you know, trying to keep a distance from themselves and what's going on in in our world. But um, I met with a number of them, and and one of the men was uh, named Abdeel, and then I met another whose name was named Abdeel, and others Abdeel, and I said, so what's the deal here? Is this like a common name in Islam, like, you know, like Olson or Johnson or Miller? 
And he said, yeah, it is kind of a common name because it's the heart of our faith. And I said, oh, really, what is that? And he says, it means God of justice. And I thought in my heart, thank you, God, that you revealed yourself through Jesus as the God of love. Who is just and righteous, but under through it all that is love. And is known even throughout the Old Testament as the Lord our God who is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet without leaving the guilty unpunished. Basically, let your life be a demonstration of your confidence in God. Now, here's the second part. Your good offense will, will provoke, will raise great questions. If you do those things where you're good and you trust and you love, Peter kind of makes this point. It's not, it isn't an intellectual thing. I mean, I, I'm not in any way denying the intellectual arguments that people have. They're very important, and there are answers and there are reasons that you can have for them. But he's not saying you need to be the answer guy. He takes us all off that playing field, and he says, yeah, there's some people, and they'll write books, and you can hand some books, and you can get the people in the, if they have intellectual questions. But here's the truth. Most all of our intellectual questions when it comes to God have a relational root. Most all those intellectual questions usually come from a woundedness. And I think what he's saying here is what's most important as you relate to that person is that as you begin to kind of take the initiative and then they begin to raise questions, what you begin to talk to them about is you give them an account for your hope. Isn't it? He doesn't say, I want you to go and change them. I want you to convince them. I want you to give a reason. He says, I just want you to be in relationship with them. And as you're in relationship with them, you get an opportunity to say, this is why I'm hoping about what's going on in my life. Just like we saw in that little video clip. The guy says, you know what? I have problems. Yeah, I still have problems with my wife, but God's, Jesus has made a difference in my life. Jesus is continuing to change us. And he has given a spiritual reservoir and strength that we didn't have before. And he goes, well, you mean I need something like that? He goes, yeah, could you help me? It doesn't happen like that often. And I think that's why it's interesting. He adds these words. He says, be gentle. And this idea of being respectful and doing so with a clear conscience. Because he's saying, if you're going to talk about Jesus and talk about your faith, make sure it's like the way Jesus would himself present it. I, I, I think what's really interesting is that we have come to the place that somehow I had come to the place where I thought when it came to sharing my faith, it was about having a certain kind of... like. Like theorem exactly right. You know, if I get these points right, I can then kind of convince them as if we're going to convince them. Or if I can just have the right arguments. I'm just, you know, most of the time, the reason we don't share our faith is because we don't feel prepared. Right? Oh, I couldn't share that. Here's what's true. Your hope is not in how you can present anything. Your hope is in Him, Jesus. A personal relationship. And if it's not real... Everyone's going to smell it. But if it's real, and even if it's filled with mistakes and sins, and you know yourself, but if it's humble, and you're seeking to grow, and you're seeking to become like Jesus, and you're seeking to know and to follow and become like him, guess what? There's going to be the opportunity, and you're not going to be telling them necessarily all the defenses. You're, you're going to be like that little lady who, who hands a some bread, and that little bread, that act of goodness causes some more questions that allows the person to be led to who? Not to even a church, not even to the right answers. You're not the answer man or other people the answer man, but to who? Jesus. That's it. 
And we got to break that whole thing down. You are a force. God said that. You're the light of the world. You are a force wherever you go. Not because of you, but because of the Spirit of God in you as you seek to trust and obey Him. As you seek to follow and just do good at all times. As you seek through those circumstances when someone's opposing you to trust God and go, God, I don't understand what's going on here, but you know one thing I do know is whenever I'm against any circumstance, it's a great opportunity for me to know that you love me and you are good to me and I'm going to just lean into that and know that you're doing something in my heart right now. And I can tell you from my own heart, when you go through those times, it really hurts, and it's really easy to get into a hopeless place. And, but you know what? As you renew your mind, you're transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. As you go to God's words, you begin to start saying, this is the right about what God has to say about who he is. This is the right things to believe. And you begin to trust that. He renews your mind, and he begins to strengthen your soul. And then as you love people who are hard to love in ways that are appropriate, I think he forces questions, and the questions aren't that you're the answer person. You just have the opportunity to share with him. And, and so he says, there's just three things I just want to, well, I'm just going to tell you, here's things that you need to realize. Jesus was secure. When you ever watch him, he's secure. I think he expects us to walk in security. Do you know that any question that person brings to you doesn't make God at all nervous? He's not going, oh, man. And neither should it make you nervous. Because you're the person that God wants next to him. And the other thing he says, be gentle. And the word gentle is a really, really hard. This word here, the best way you could kind of describe it is the word humility. And in the New Testament, it's a really hard word to define. But it, it, it almost has this idea of, of just gentle, humble listening and seeking to learn and to be open and to listen with curiosity because your curiosity is not to try and go, okay, I'm going to get an answer to that. Your curiosity is to know their heart because in their heart there's probably a wound and on that is some kind of question. And your job is to know their heart and love them. And not only was he secure, but he was respectful, he says. He didn't try to coerce. He didn't pressure for an outcome. He, I, I love this. He just let the Holy Spirit do the whole work. He, I, I love to say this. Someone told me this once, and I think it's a really good thing when it comes to sharing your faith. Your job is just to do that other stuff and let the Holy Spirit do the heavy lifting. He changes hearts. And the only way that heart really changes is not because of some argument, but because their spirit has been regenerated by faith in a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And then lastly, he says, do it with a good, clear conscience. So when you're done, you kind of go, you know what? I um, have met them just like Jesus did. I love this word. So I'm going to read a few things here to conclude with by Dallas Willard. He says, what we are seeking to defend or explain is Jesus himself, who is gentle and a loving shepherd. If we are not gentle and respectful in how we present the good news, how will people encounter the gentle and loving Messiah we want to point them to? I'm going to ask the team as they come forward. I'm going to write just this last, just listen to this. In his lure of gentleness, Dallas Ward says, in an age shaped by feuding intellectual commitments and cultural battles over religion, science, truth, and morality, how will we get a hearing by merely insisting that we have truth and reason on our side? Many have made these claims before us, some in a spirit of aggression, some in fear, and some in arrogance. 
our apologetics happens in a context, and that context is strewn often with an enmity and hostility and abuse and other opposition, which ultimately contradicts the very thing our message lifts up. That is why our apologetic has to embody the message and person we want to communicate. And only in gentleness and reverence will people be able to see, verify, and be persuaded to respond to what we have to say. So I just, you know what, when we talk about defending the gospel, your best, your best defense is to just take the initiative and love people. That's the best offense. And then allow God over time to raise questions and introduce them to Jesus.